Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 18. Father, I just want to ask your blessing upon the Word of God today, that you'd bring back to my remembrance the things that you taught me, that you'd help me to clearly teach those truths that would help this congregation. Father, be, be here, be in our midst, Lord. Help us to pursue Christ above all. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to pick it up at Luke chapter 16, verses 14 to 18 this morning. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now I have to confess to you, the first time I read through those verses, I thought, what in the world is holding those verses together? It seems like they're just sort of odds and ends of Jesus' teaching all stuck in one paragraph without any rhyme or reason to them or any central idea. But as almost always happens, the more I meditated on the passage and thought about it, the more I saw a synthesis to what was taking place there. And I really believe what the Holy Spirit has done is He's showing us the character of lost religious people. See, there's only two kinds of people in the world, aren't there? You've got saved and lost people. Sheep and goats. The saved and the damned. You have those who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and those who have not been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. But if we just take the lost portion of humanity, there's also two kinds of lost people. There are religious lost people and there are irreligious lost people. There are moral lost people and immoral lost people. Well, we're going to be talking about the moral, religious kind of lost people today. And the very best example of a moral and religious lost person is the Pharisees. And they're the ones that Jesus is addressing in verses 14 to 18. <clears throat> You'll notice in verse 14 that the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all the things that Jesus was saying, and they were scoffing at him. And that prompts Jesus to give a response to these Pharisees about themselves and their particular character. And so, what I want to do this morning is give you six marks of a lost religious person. And the way, the way we're going to learn and benefit from this is by bewaring of and guarding ourselves against those particular marks because we don't want to see those same things in our own life as believers in Jesus Christ. So the first mark is this. They were making money their God. They were making money their God. It says that the Pharisees who were lovers of money 
We're listening to the things that Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Notice 16 verse 1. He was also saying to the disciples. So the disciples were the audience. The Pharisees are listening in on Jesus' teaching to his disciples. But they were scoffing. And they were scoffing because they were lovers of money. Now, what had Jesus just been teaching his disciples that they would scoff at? Well, he said in verse 9, And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let me just make that real simple for you. What Jesus was telling his disciples is, use your money to help people get saved, so that when your money fails and you die, those people who have been saved through the use of your money and are already in heaven will receive you into the heavenly eternal dwellings. So use your money for the salvation of souls, is what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees scoffed at that. Why? Because they love their money. They didn't want to give away their money for salvation purposes. And not only that, in verse 13, Jesus emphasizes this. He says, No servant can serve two different masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now Jesus does not say you should not serve God and wealth. He says you can't. It's impossible because God is a master and wealth is a master. And you can't have two masters at the same time. A master is a supreme authority in your life. You can only have one supreme authority. And when God is your supreme authority, money is off the throne, money set down over here. But if you're pursuing money as your God, then God is off the throne over on this side. And so the Pharisees are scoffing and mocking Jesus because they loved money. And what we really see about them is that they had made money their God. That's the first grave mistake we see in a lost religious person. Oftentimes they will make money their God. And so, what do we call it when you make something other than the God of the Bible your God? We call it idolatry. And we might think, well, we're Christians. We don't have to worry about that, right? Wrong. <laughs> because in 1 John chapter 5, the very last verse of that letter, John says, little children, guard yourselves from idolatry. Guard yourselves from idols. So we do have to beware and be on our guard against idolatry. So let me just ask you a few questions and just answer in your own heart. Do you love God or do you love money? What do you love more? What is your supreme love? And you might be able to tell the answer to that if you ask yourself a couple of other questions, like, what do I invest my time and my energy in most? What am I thinking about most? Where is my heart's affection most? What's my supreme pursuit in life? Can I honestly say it's God? Or would I have to say, no, I, I think at this point in my life I'm supremely interested in getting money and more money and having more than I do before. So that's a bad sign for a Christian because that means that God is not your supreme affection. So we need to beware of this particular sin of the Pharisees. They were making money their God. 
Now, the second mark, let's look at the second mark. They were opposing the truth. They were opposing the truth. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and notice their response. They were scoffing. Your version might say sneering. Some versions say they were sneering at him. Some versions say they were mocking him. Some say they were ridiculing him. It has the idea that they were looking down their noses at Jesus as though Jesus was beneath them. They looked on him with disdain. They belittled him. Now, why would they do that? Well, the next verse says that they were those who justified themselves. Jesus' words about the use of money were condemning them. And in order to save face and to justify themselves before the people, they had to do something. And so they belittled Jesus. They, they pretended as though his teaching was lame and it was ridiculous. They put it down as though it was of no consequence. And so this is the way that they, they dealt with those words that came from Jesus that would attack their character. Rather than humble themselves before the truth, they opposed it. They opposed it by saying that it's ridiculous. It's, it's of no value. That reminds me of a couple of stories in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 24, we find the Apostle Paul brought, brought before the governor Felix. And in verse 25, it says, But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Isn't that an interesting case? So Paul's talking to him about three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And I have a feeling he was speaking to him about righteousness because Felix was an unrighteous man. He's speaking to him about self-control because Felix lacked self-control. And he's speaking to him about the judgment to come because that's where Felix was headed. All men are headed to the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the things that they've done in the body. And when Paul pressed these truths upon Felix's conscience, how does Felix respond? He said he was frightened. And he says to Paul, go away. Go away for the present. When I find time, I'll summon you. That's an interesting expression. When I find time, as though time were lost and you had to go around looking for it. That, that's an excuse people make when they don't want to deal with something. When I find the time, I'll get to that. Well, the truth is, we make time for the things that are really important to us. Felix here was confronted with the truth that Paul preached, and he did the same thing the Pharisees did. He opposed it. He put it off. He made excuses so he wouldn't have to deal with the truth. This whole passage also reminded me of James chapter 1, where in verse 21, James says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So, what is the character quality that we have to possess in order to receive the word? It's humility. What did the Pharisees lack? Humility. They were a proud, self-righteous people. 
They wanted other people to look up to them. So they had this facade, this mask that they wore. They went about as hypocrites pretending to be what they weren't. They were proud people. And so when the word confronted them, rather than to humble themselves under the word and let the word convict them and let the word change them, they just opposed it. They put their hands up and opposed it and actually belittled Jesus, mocked and sneered at Jesus rather than humble themselves under the word and let the word do its work. Wouldn't it have been great if those Pharisees had taken to heart Jesus' teaching on money? And rather than be lovers of money, have repented that day of their love of money and said, okay, Lord, whatever you want, show me how to use this money for your glory. I'm willing to be changed. But that's not what they did. They opposed the truth. Look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because I want you to see the kind of attitude that God wants us to have to the truth. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 8 to 12. This is speaking about the lawless one, a man of sin that will be revealed at some point. Verse 8 says, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now this is really a serious, somber, powerful section of Scripture. Verse 11 says, God is going to send on some people a deluding influence. We always think that it's the devil that sends a deluding influence upon people. The Bible says God's going to do that to a group of people. And He's going to send this deluding influence upon people so that they won't believe the truth. Isn't that crazy? We think God is trying to get everyone to believe the truth. But there are some people that he's going to delude so that they won't believe the truth. In other words, they're going to believe what is false, and he's going to do that so that they will be judged who didn't believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But now let's back it up. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, This is going to come upon those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The love of the truth. That's the attitude the Christian is to have towards truth. He's to love it. He's to love it. He's to prize it, cherish it, esteem it, value it as a treasure. Let me ask you, do you love the truth? Or do you oppose the truth? When God's word convicts you and cuts into you, and hurts because it shows you, it opens up your heart and shows you something that's wrong inside there. Do you stick up your hand and say, I don't, don't want to deal with that today. I'll get around to that if I can find the time some, you know, like Felix. When I find the time, I'll deal with that. Or do you take the posture that James says, in humility do you receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul? The people who don't receive a love of the truth are going to be deluded they're going to believe what is false and they're going to be judged 
because they did not take pleasure in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Do you see how important it is that we love truth? This is the second mark of a religious lost person. Not only did they make money their God, they opposed the truth. Thirdly, these Pharisees were justifying themselves. If you go back to Luke 16, notice verse 15. Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. There are only really two ways to try to approach God, aren't there? Now we all know that God is holy and righteous, and so we know instinctively that in order for us to approach God, we've also got to be holy and righteous. So we can overcome that problem in one of two ways. Either we can justify ourselves, like the Pharisees did, or we can be justified by God. There's only two possibilities. Either you depend upon your own righteousness, and that's to justify yourself, depend upon your own righteousness, or you depend upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ who is given to you as a gift when you trust Him. So it's either self-justification or divine justification. But all men seek to be able to approach God in one of two different ways. Philippians chapter 3, in verse 9, the Apostle Paul is talking about this very thing. And he says... Uh, Paul says, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, do you see the two types of righteousness there? He says, I don't want to have the kind of righteousness which is from myself, which is derived from the law, nor obedience to the law as my ground of acceptance with God. I don't want that kind of... I used to try... He, he takes great pains to show us in the earlier part of Philippians chapter 3 that he had a lot of that kind of righteousness, but he cast it away as dung, as worthless, as garbage, compared to having Christ and righteousness which comes through him. So he says, I don't want to have a righteousness which comes from me, which is derived from law obedience, but the kind I want is the kind that comes through faith, in Christ. It's the righteousness which comes from God. Not from me. This comes from God and it comes on the basis of faith. So here's how justification works. If you want to be justified by God, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and God himself takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it to your account as a gift by his grace on account of believing faith. So it's either self-justification or divine justification. But there's only two ways to approach God. Now, Jesus said, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. You justify yourselves, but God knows your hearts. That's a scary thing for Jesus to say. You're justifying yourself. But did you know that God looks inside you and he sees your heart, and he knows what's going on when you seek to justify yourself, and he sees an ugly sight in there. 
Doesn't that remind you of the parable Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to the temple to pray? And he's in the beginning, it says, he was telling them this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So, what does it mean to trust in yourself that you're righteous? What kind of justification do you have at that moment? You have self-justification, don't you? You're trusting in yourself. You're not trusting in God. You're not trusting in Christ. You're trusting in yourself that you're righteous. Well, that was the Pharisee's position. And he went up and prayed a very self-congratulatory prayer on how God should be so happy to have him on his team and in his kingdom and how he wasn't like other people. He wasn't unjust. He wasn't a swindler. He wasn't an adulterer. He fasted twice a week. He paid tithes of all that he got. But the Bible says he was praying to himself. His prayers never made it through the roof of the temple. God never even heard that prayer. But then there's this despised tax collector who was looked on as a traitor to the nation of Israel because he was taking money from the Jews and giving it to the Romans. The Jews hated those guys. They wouldn't even associate with them. But he's up in the temple, and he's a good distance off from that holy, righteous Pharisee. And he's beating his breasts, and he's calling out to heaven, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What does Jesus say? Who went down to his house justified that day? It was the tax collector. The Pharisee was not justified. Which means the Pharisee was not forgiven of his sins. The Pharisee was not right with God. But the hated, despised tax collector and all of his filth and sin and wickedness was justified. He was forgiven. He was made right with God through the sacrifice. The, mer the mercy-seated sacrifice. So there's a, a, a beautiful illustration of this principle. God knew these Pharisees' hearts. God didn't justify them. But those who condemn themselves, who come before the Lord in humility, who call upon Him for mercy, they are the ones whom God grants justification to. Now Jesus also says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. And then he says, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable. The word detestable is the word for abomination. And it means that thing which God hates. So the things that people in the world think are so valuable and so wonderful are the things that God hates. What are the things in the world that people esteem? Well, they esteem those that have a lot of money. They esteem a good outward show of morality. Many times they will esteem someone who appears to be religious. Uh, they will esteem someone who does good works. And the Pharisees are full of all of these things. They had money. They were lovers of money. They had good works. They uh, had religious devotion. They attended synagogue services. Some of them were part of the Sanhedrin, the upper echelon of the Jewish community. They had morality. They had religiosity. They had all of these things that were highly esteemed. And Jesus is saying, God knows your hearts. God detests all of that. Now, why would God detest all those things that we think are so great? 
I think it comes down to the motive of someone's heart. Why do you do the things you do? You see, you can do all of those things that I just listed, and you could do them out of greed, hypocrisy, and pride. All sin. Although it looks good on the outside, on the inside where God sees, it's all sin. It's all ugliness and filth. God sees the hypocrisy and the pride and the covetousness going on. God's, God saw into the hearts of these Pharisees and he saw that they weren't doing it for him. They were doing all that they did so that they would be noticed by men. So that people would pat them on the back and tell them how good they were. They weren't doing it for God. And so they were justifying themselves. We need to beware of ever seeking to be right with God based on our efforts, our works, our service to God, as though there is something within us that we can offer that will somehow make us right with God. And it's impossible. Because we're born fallen. We're born sinful. We're born corrupt. And all we can really give that comes from us, from our flesh, is just more sin. So, let me just urge you this morning, make sure that God has justified you. How would a person know if they're justified by God? How would a person know that? Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, he says we're justified by His blood. Justified by faith, justified by Christ's blood. Romans 5, 9. Romans 3, 24 says we're justified as a gift by His what? Grace. Three words. Faith, blood, and grace. Notice that you're justified not by anything that comes from you. Well, you might say, my faith comes from me. That's true, but did you know that even faith is a gift of God? Faith is a gift of His grace. He enables His people to exercise saving faith in the Son of God. So, justification comes by faith in Christ, and specifically the blood of Christ, the death of Christ that covers our sin. So, beware of making money your God. Beware of opposing the truth. And beware of justifying yourself. Number four. The Pharisees were seeking the applause of men. You say, Brian, where do you get that? And I didn't read that in these verses. Well, look at verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. That's where it's coming from. Those five little words. In the sight of men. They were doing all that they were doing to impress people. To be praised and applauded by other people. It doesn't say, it doesn't say there that um, you justify yourselves in the sight of God. They were justifying themselves in the sight of other people. That's what they were concerned about. What do people see when they see me? All they did was for the eyes of other people. And it was all an abomination because it was all done for the wrong reason. It's all done for the wrong motive. Did you know what needs to be in place in order for you to do a truly good work? You need to do that 
good thing out of love for God, by faith in God, and for the glory of God. See, God must be the end of why you do what you do. If God isn't in your focus when you do these supposed good works or good things, it's a bad work. It's an evil work. It's done for the wrong motive and it's a sinful motive. And so the Pharisees were doing good things for wrong reasons and, and Jesus says it's an abomination. It's detestable in the sight of God. Isn't that what Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 6? He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. For truly I say to you, you have your reward in full. In other words, you're not going to get any other reward other than the reward of people telling you you're such a great guy. Do you want heavenly rewards that will come from God himself? Come on, folks, you do, don't you? Okay, then the only way that we can have those kind of rewards is to forget about man. I know that is so hard for it. Why is it so hard for us to do anything good without thinking about how it's going to be perceived by other people? And we, we so little think about how does God perceive what I'm doing right now? We have to change that focus. We need to be God-centered people. Where we, even if you're vacuuming the floor, like I do that every Saturday to prepare for church, am I doing this for man or am I doing this for God? And one of the most wonderful things about this is that you can take the most disgusting chore, the most difficult thing in the world, and it can become a very sweet thing if you're doing it for God and doing it for God's eyes alone. You can be picking up dog poop in the backyard and you can be worshiping the Lord. Seriously, if you're doing it for Him, it doesn't matter what it is, and it doesn't matter if anybody notices, you don't even care at that point. If you're really thinking, Lord, I'm just doing this for you, I love you, Lord, uh, it's so wonderful to be able to serve you, it'll take any chore, no matter how mundane or boring or disgusting it is, and it'll turn it into a sweet savor. It'll be sweet to you, because it's done unto Jesus. I don't know if... Have, can you relate to that? Have you ever done something for the Lord and it changed it from this disgusting thing into a wonderful time, a, a time of actual worship because it was done for His eyes? Back when we were meeting two buildings ago over on Folsom Boulevard, we were just out, starting out in a public place and um, sometimes there would be eight or ten people there. And I would go back into the back with Kelly. Sometimes Oleg would come back. Sometimes Sean Dining would come back or Fernando. And we would pray before the service started. And I would think, oh my goodness, I have spent hours and hours studying this text. And there's almost no one to preach to. <laughs> and I would start to get kind of down. And Kelly Salis would be so faithful to remind me. He says, Brian, you're preaching to an audience of one. And he was so right. <laughs> Every time he told me that that would release something in me. And it wouldn't matter if I had one person there. It wouldn't, that wouldn't even matter if I could get the perspective, okay, I'm not doing this for people. Primarily, I am preaching for your glory, God, for your pleasure. The numbers don't matter. What matters is I'm faithful to your word, Lord, and I'm telling people what you have said in this word. And I'm telling them the truth, God. I know you'll be pleased if I just do that. See, if we can have that perspective, I'm vacuuming for an audience of one. I'm doing the dishes for an audience of one. I'm going to my job and working hard today for an audience of one. I don't care who else sees it. God sees it. God takes notice of it. And God's going to reward someday people who faithfully serve Him. So take heart and beware 
of this error of the Pharisees of seeking the applause of man. Number five, a fifth mark. They were rejecting the gospel of the kingdom. This comes out in verses 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Okay, the first thing we need to observe here is this phrase, the law and the prophets. Now, what's that talking about? Anybody know? That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament scripture. That was a sort of a, a phrase, a synonym for all the Old Testament revelation that God had given his people. Notice it's called the Law and the Prophets in verse 16, but it's even abbreviated further in verse 17. What's it called there in verse 17? The Law. Sometimes the phrase, the Law, is just an abbreviated form for all of Old Testament revelation. Sometimes it's called the Law and the Prophets. Sometimes Jesus referred to it as Moses, the Law, and the Prophets. Okay? So we're talking about the Old Testament Scripture, the Old Testament Revelation. That was proclaimed until John. So there was preaching, there was proclamation going on for centuries until John the Baptist showed up. Now what were they proclaiming for all those centuries until John the Baptist came? What was the main central focus of all Old Testament Revelation? You guys, what would you say? What was that? Oh, being faithful to the promised land. Okay, all right. Anybody else want to? See, Old Testament was looking forward to something. Ever since Genesis 3.15, which spoke of a redeemer that would come and crush the head of the serpent, symbolic of Satan, they were looking forward to someone who had come and restore paradise again to God's people. It had been lost through the fall. Man was now fallen, corrupt, suffering. He got sick. He dies. All of that was against the original intention of God before the fall came in. And, and God is promising that a person, a Messiah, a Savior, a Deliverer, is going to come and restore everything back to the original purpose. And so we see that in the types and shadows. Do you remember when God took the skins of animals and covered Adam and Eve's nakedness? That was a picture that one day there would be another one who would give his righteousness through his death and cover guilty naked people and take away their shame. We see it in the flood of Noah. It's a picture that God's judgment is once again going to come, but He is going to rescue out of that judgment all those who take shelter in the ark of Christ, the one who is to come. You find all of these animal sacrifices, don't you, as you go through the Old Testament? Over and over and over, all these animals are dying, and they're all innocent, but why are they dying? To cover the sins of guilty people. It's all pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice who would come, lay down his life, shed his blood so that we would go free. You see it in the Passover lamb. God passed over his guilty people because the blood was applied to their door. You see it in the day of atonement when you have 
a goat that was taken off into the wilderness and let go after the sins of the people had been confessed over it. It's let go into the wilderness never to return, symbolizing our sins taken away from us, never to return back on us again. But then there's this other goat that is slain and the blood of that goat is taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the mercy seat to cover over the broken commandments that were inside that ark. I mean, I could go on and on and on talking about these types and shadows. The high priest was a type of Jesus Christ. So you have the festivals, the priesthood. You have Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ. He's both a king and a priest at the same time, showing us Jesus, the king priest. But then there's explicit prophecies also about this one who is to come. Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Did you know that that prophecy was given hundreds of years before anyone had ever invented crucifixion as an art of killing people? They pierced my hands and my feet, showing how the Messiah would die. Or Isaiah 53, one of the most remarkable of all the Old Testament scriptures, in detail laying out the suffering servant and how he would come and lay down his life on behalf of his people. Explicit promises were told in the Old Testament that he would be born in Bethlehem. We're told that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. We're told that he would be betrayed by a trusted friend. We're told that others would gamble for his clothing. We're told that he would be pierced. We're told that he would die on behalf of others, not for himself. We're told that he would rise from the dead. All of these prophecies are given over and over and over, pointing to the ultimate one who would to come. So, the law and the prophets were proclaimed. The central focus of the law and the prophets was this one who would come to restore fallen mankind back to paradise, which won't ultimately happen until the new heavens and the new earth are created by God in the future. And then we will have Eden again without sin, without the curse, without the fall, in the very presence of God, and we'll see his See him with his own eyes, the Bible says. So that's what we have here in verse 16. The law and the prophets, they were proclaimed until John. But notice, since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. Something new, something radically new happened when John the Baptist came on the scene. Because John the Baptist is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He had a foot in both worlds, you might say. He was the one who prepared the way of the Lord. Jesus came introducing the new covenant. And John the Baptist is the one who came preparing people to receive Jesus when he came on the scene. So, the gospel of the kingdom is preached from John the Baptist on. There, there's a difference between proclaiming the law and the prophets and now the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is preached by John and by Jesus. Do you remember the first words out of John's mouth? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first words out of the mouth of Jesus? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're preaching the good news of the kingdom. The king has arrived. The Messiah you've been waiting for is here. He's the king. And he has a kingdom. And you can become part of that kingdom by repentance and faith in him. But you better hurry. And you better come quick. Because you don't know how long your opportunity will hold out. So get into the kingdom while the getting's good is the basic message. 
The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, there's a change. The, God, the gospel, the good news of this kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Now let me come back to that in a minute. Look at 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Now remember, law here should not be understood as the Ten Commandments. Law here should be understood as a, an abbreviated synonym for Old Testament revelation. So what's he saying in verse 17? It's easier for the universe to go out of existence than for one promise of the Old Testament to fail to be fulfilled. In other words, everything in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi that sh was, was promising this one to come, every detail of this Christ, this Messiah to come, will be fulfilled. And it will be easier for the universe to cease to exist than for something promised in the scriptures of the Old Testament to fail to come to pass. Now, we can go back to the end of verse 16. He says, and everyone is forcing his way into the kingdom. In another place, he says, the violent take the kingdom by force. And what's he talking about there? Everyone's forcing his way into the kingdom. Well, if you go over to Mark chapter 1, verse 5, you notice what was taking place in John the Baptist's ministry. All the country of Judea was going out to John the Baptist, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Who was going out? All the country of Judea. <laughs> all the people of Jerusalem. In other words, there is a massive awakening. There is a massive uh, stirring of the hearts of God's covenant people at that particular time where droves of them are going out from the city of Jerusalem and the country of Judea. They're going out to, and they're so serious about this that they are willing to confess their sins publicly before they get baptized. So people are forcing their way into the kingdom. Notice also back in Luke 15, 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to Him. People were flocking to Christ. But it wasn't the self-righteous, those who justified themselves, was it? It was the tax collectors and the sinners. It was the prostitutes and the harlots. It was the notorious thieves and th riffraff of society. The people that knew that they were lawbreakers, that they knew that they were guilty before God and needed a Savior. These are the ones that love Jesus and flock to hear Him. So that's what Jesus means here when He says that everyone is forcing His way into the kingdom. Now Jesus did not mean everyone literally, because I, I need to show you another text from Luke chapter 7. If you just turn over Luke 7 verse 29. It says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So we have all the country of Judea and all the people of Jerusalem flocking out to be baptized by John. But who are those that weren't baptized by John? The Pharisees and the lawyers. So when Jesus says over in Luke 16, 
that everybody's forcing their way into the kingdom, he means everybody but you. The mistake you're making is that your pride is keeping you from entering the kingdom. They didn't want... They didn't want the people who thought so highly of them to have a bad opinion as they went into the waters and had to confess their sins and were baptized. They were too self-righteous and too proud to be able to admit their sins. And so they stood off from the kingdom and they belittled Jesus who said he had brought the kingdom. They scoffed at him and mocked his word. So the Pharisees were shut out of the kingdom. They wouldn't humble themselves. They wouldn't seek mercy through Jesus Christ. So the lesson here for us folks is beware of making the same mistake. Beware of rejecting the gospel of the kingdom out of pride. Now that's really the only reason why someone would want to reject the gospel because the, the gospel is good news. But it's only good news for humble people. It's not good news for a proud person. God has no good news for a person who is proud and won't admit he's a sinner and won't come to Jesus Christ to receive free and full salvation. But oh, there's a full salvation for any of us who are just admit that we need it, that we're fallen and sinful and cry out for mercy, cast ourselves on the mercy of God. Okay, let's go on finally to Mark number 6. The sixth mark of the Pharisees was this, they were bending God's word to suit themselves. And this comes out in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one is divorced, who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. There were two schools of thought in Jesus' day concerning what was a justifiable reason for divorcing a spouse. And usually it was the men that divorced the women because the women really did not have much clout in that particular culture. So that's why he talks about the woman being divorced here. Everyone who divorces his wife, he doesn't say everyone who divorces his husband. So there, there were two schools of thought. There was the school of thought of Hillel. He was a Jewish rabbi. He taught that a Jewish man could divorce his wife for basically any reason. If she displeased him, or if he found that she was unclean in his sight for any reason at all, he had the right to divorce her and remarry. The other school of thought was Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, another Jewish rabbi. He was more conservative, and he taught, no, the only justifiable reason was adultery. Well, guess what school of thought the Pharisees are lining themselves under? They're going with Hillel. They are divorcing their wives, finding somebody else, and Jesus is coming and addressing the Pharisees on this very issue, saying, you guys are going down the wrong path because you're committing adultery and you're causing that wife that you've divorced, when she remarries, she's committing adultery and the person that marries her is committing adultery. These are strong words, aren't they? Now, these are some of the reasons, according to the school of Hillel, why you could divorce your wife. If she burned your dinner, if she put too much salt in the food, if she twirled around in the streets and reve revealed her knees to another man, if she took down her hair in public, if she was infertile and could not give you a child, if she criticized your mother-in-law, or if he found somebody prettier than her. 
Those are all justifiable reasons to divorce her. Just get rid of her. Go find somebody else. But Jesus identifies himself with the school of Shammai, doesn't he? Now, he doesn't say so here. He doesn't give us any exceptions. But in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, Jesus says that he who divorces his wife except for unchastity or except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the exception clause of Matthew is sexual sin. Now the word there, porneia, is a, is a word broad enough to include any kind of sexual sin. It could be homosexuality, it could be bestiality, it could be adultery. Any kind of sexual sin qualifies uh, to be biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage, although, I will say this, just because that happens in a marriage does not mean you have to do that. It would be preferable if you could forgive and mend the relationship and go on, but sometimes that's just not possible, and God knows that. So Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you're proliferating adulteries all over the place because whenever you find someone who is unclean in your sight, you divorce her, you remarry somebody else. So what are you doing? You're committing adultery. God doesn't even recognize the new marriage. He recognizes that you're married to this first one, but now you're having sex with this person. It doesn't matter that you've gone through the marriage vow. In God's eyes, you're married to this person. There's no biblical grounds for you to be released from that person and to marry this one. Do you see why it would be considered adultery? There's also another exception in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which says that if an unbeliever deserts the believer, that, that the, uh, the believer is not under bondage. And this is interpreted in various ways, but my present understanding is that that would also be um, an exception, just like sexual immorality, that there seem to be two biblical grounds that I can see in the Bible well, three, death. Death is grounds for remarriage. Uh, sexual immorality and desertion. Like if a believer was married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever just could not handle being married to the believer so they just left, just left the relationship and took off and did not come back, then it appears from 1 Corinthians 7 that would also be grounds for divorce and remarriage. So those are the two exceptions that I can see. What I want you to see here is that the Pharisees were experts at bending God's word to suit themselves. They really liked the interpretation of Hillel because that suited their flesh. And I have talked to many people. I've been a Christian a long time now. <laughs> I got saved in 79. So what does that make it? 36 years now. And I've talked to lots of people, and I've pastored churches, and so I've done counseling, and I have heard so many persons tell me, the reason I'm leaving him and going to marry this one is because God wants me to be happy. Right? God wants me to be happy as though I'm just going to agree with that. And I usually say, no, God wants you to be holy. God wants you to be holy. Now, yes, he loves you, but you will never find happiness in disobeying God. You'll find happiness in serving God and obeying him. We need to return to the sanctity of marriage. And in our culture today, I mean, you know it very well, don't you? I mean, number one, people don't even get married anymore. This, this shocks me. 
we go out knocking on doors and talking to people and we find a man and a woman there and I just assume they're married. It turns out nine times out of ten they're living together. Almost nobody gets married anymore. And the people that do get married, though they're married as long as it's convenient to stay married. God's purpose is a man and a woman unite together in marriage for a lifetime. Till death do you part, in sickness and in health, whether there is trouble or no trouble, whether it's a happy marriage or a stormy marriage. If you say, I do, you are committing yourself for life. And you have no right to break that vow. You've made that vow in the eyes of God. So we need to return to the sanctity of marriage. And so when someone tells me, well, God wants me to be happy, and that's why I'm going to divorce and marry somebody else, they have been caught up with this worldly spirit that comes through the media, that comes through TV, that comes through godless unbelievers that are telling you lies. They're not telling you God's truth. I've heard people say, I'm going to divorce that person because they've been emo emotionally abusing me. Well, I'm sorry, but I can't find that in the Bible as a reason that God gives to divorce and remarry somebody else because you're emotionally abused. Now, I, I empathize with someone who actually is, if it's true that they are actually being emotionally abused, that's a horrible thing. And the person who's doing that is guilty before God. But does that give you the right to go out and, and divorce this one and remarry somebody else? If it's really, really serious, maybe you need to separate for a while until you can work things out in your marriage. But I don't think it gives us the right to divorce and remarry somebody else. Other people say, well, I'm going to divorce and marry somebody else because that person's not meeting my needs. Is that why you got married? To get your needs met? If you did, you got married for the wrong reason. You got married in order to give your life away to that other person. People don't understand that today. They get married because they think that person is going to complete me and make me happy. And when it turns out, boy, there's, they're not making me happy anymore. I want out of this thing. I'm sorry, you're stuck. <laughs> because you made a vow before God. Now, you can go out and divorce and remarry, but you're committing adultery. You're sinning against God and you're committing adultery if you do that. I've heard other people say, I'm going to divorce this person because they're mismanaging our finances. But that's not a, a biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. It's a bad thing. It's a horrible thing. It creates lots of stress and trouble, but it's not a biblical grounds for divorce. The Pharisees had misinterpreted God's law. This comes from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 5 or so. They had misinterpreted that because it suited themselves. It made them able to get rid of this woman who wasn't bringing them happiness anymore and try to find someone who would complete them and make them happy. There is a, a family friend of ours who, when we all attended the same church, and she eventually divorced her husband, and she came to Debbie and told Debbie that she was going to uh, remarry. That she had found somebody, she thought this person would make her happy, the first person didn't, and so she was going to remarry. And Debbie said, you know you can't do that. And she said, what are you talking about? Well, the Bible. The Bible. You, if you divorce, you remain divorced. You, you, the only person you can remarry is the person that you divorced. According to 1 Corinthians 7, you can't just go around divorcing and marrying anybody you want. And so they, they had a disagreement, and it ended up... Um, 
breaking fellowship. Debbie felt like she had to break fellowship with this good friend of years over that issue um, because of that Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It talks about someone who says that they're a Christian and yet practices sin, um, that you are not even to associate with that person, not even to eat a meal with them. You're to withdraw. If you don't believe me, it's in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <laughs> but what she had done is, in order to justify her divorce and remarriage, she had found some obscure author, I think it was from England, who agreed with her that it was okay for her to divorce and get remarried. And this guy had come up with a very long, involved, and complicated argument that if we just understood the Greek, and if we just understood uh, Jewish culture at that time, we would understand that Jesus didn't mean what it seems like he said. But almost nobody agrees with them. But she found this book that agreed with her, and so she latched onto the book, and that was her biblical grounds, or not biblical, that was her grounds to divorce and marry somebody else. You have to be really, really careful with your heart because your heart will deceive you. Your heart will come up with a thousand reasons why you can do what God doesn't want you to do because your flesh yearns after what is forbidden. That's why we have to stay so close to this book, my friends. And you have to watch your heart that you don't misinterpret what God has said. Look for the plain, natural meaning in a text. I don't think God expected us to go through a million gyrations and complicated uh, philosophies in order to try to figure out. I think in most cases, the Bible's pretty clear. You can read it and you can understand what God is trying to communicate. And so we need to beware of following forced or overly complicated interpretations of Scripture in order to justify a lifestyle that we want to pursue. We need to be honest with God's Word and put ourselves under the authority of the Word. See, in this situation, this person was putting themselves above the Word, I believe. They were finding a way to do what they wanted to do, and they were not allowing the Word to have authority over their life. We are subject to God and God speaks through His Word. And so we need to read this book and obey what it says. So, I don't know if I'm speaking to anyone here who's gone through divorce. Probably. I mean, even in a group as small as ours, there's probably someone who's, who's done that. If it is, you say, well, am I committing adultery? Well, if you got divorced for unbiblical grounds and you remarried somebody else, according to Jesus, yes committing adultery. What should I do about that? It's probably impossible to go back to the situation you were in before. If it's possible to remarry your first husband, maybe that's the, the answer. If it's impossible because both of you now are married to somebody else and you both have children in these other relationships and it's just not going to happen, then at the very least you need to confess that as sin to God and repent of it. So I would just ask anybody who's gone through a divorce, have you done that? Have you truly confessed that as sin and repented of the sin of unbiblical divorce and remarrying when it was not the will of God for you to do that? Those are the six points, the six marks of the Pharisees. They were making money their God, so beware. Beware of pursuing idols. 
They were opposing the truth. We need to have a love for the truth. Which means if we love the truth, we're going to be reading the truth. We'll be meditating on the truth. We'll make pursuing the truth a part of our life every day because we love it. If you love something, you want it. You make time for it. It's not when I find the time. No, you make time for the truth if you love the truth. Thirdly, they were justifying themselves. Don't make that mistake. Make sure that you're justified by God through faith in Jesus Christ. They were seeking the applause of men. Make sure that you live for God's eyes alone. Train yourself. Train yourself in the habit of godliness that when you find yourself being motivated to do this or that because somebody else is going to have this opinion of you, repent of that. Rebuke that. Remember, call to mind at the moment that's happening that this is wrong, this is sin, that you need to turn from that whole thing and turn to God in that very moment and say, Lord, how do you want me to act in this situation? They were rejecting the gospel of the kingdom. We need to prize and love and cherish and esteem and obey and live the gospel of the kingdom as our only hope. And they were bending God's word to suit themselves. We need to be honest with the word. We need to be honest with it. If it says something, let's let the Bible say what it says and let's put ourselves under its authority rather than trying to weasel our way out because we don't like what the Bible says. So these are the marks of the lost religious person. I pray God keeps us from participating in those ungodly marks. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, would you please work in our hearts? Show us, Lord, if any of these six marks apply to us. Maybe there's more than one. We pray that we would be humble before you, Lord. That we would be like a servant who bows low before his master and says, what would you have me do today, Lord? And Lord, to the extent that we have sinned and made very serious mistakes, we pray, Lord, your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that we would acknowledge it for what it is as evil in your sight and would turn from it and covenant that we will not make that mistake again by your grace so work in us your will lord may we be pleasing in your sight in jesus name amen